Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is January 22nd, 2013. 2013? Did we just have a flashback? 2015. And this is episode 1505 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today. Michael Jordan, also known as the Bee Whisperer, is on the line. I'll bring him on in just a moment. We're going to talk about building an income with bees and homesteading in general and many entrepreneurial ideas. Uh, Michael's a great guy and just a solid human being. He'll be with us in just a moment. Before that, uh, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Knife Kits. Dot com. If you want to learn how to build knives, you can do that at knifekits.com. You can get simple kits to put together, pick out some handle material. If you have no idea what you're doing, they got books and DVDs to help you complete your first project. And your first project is likely not to be your last. You might become addicted to the concept of bladecraft. And if you are an advanced blade, blade crafter and you uh, are looking for exotic materials, they have that too. Anything and everything knives you'll find at knifekits.com. Check them out today. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company I've ever been asked to endorse. It's now 2015, not 13, by the way. I first subscribed to Backwoods Home Magazine in 1994. I'm still a subscriber. That's over 20 years. That should tell you how much I love the work they do over at Backwoods Home Magazine. You can learn more at BackwoodsHome.com. Next up, do check out the Member Support Brigade. Hey, support the show if you like the show. Comes out to 18.3 cents an episode if you do the math when you join the Member Support Brigade. And guess what? You'll get content available nowhere else. Over 60 different companies offering you discounts you can't get anywhere else. Imagine if AAA was actually real discounts and for companies you actually did business with. It's kind of how I built the MSB. I won't come pick your truck up if you're stuck on the side of the road, but my discounts are real and they actually matter. Check it out today at uh, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Just click on Members to learn how to sign up. Uh, on that note, if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, you uh, can get a discount if you email me before, not after you join. Email me at jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Put service discount TSPC in the subject line and tell me about your service in one or two sentences. And I'll tell you how to claim that discount again. Do this before, not after you join the Members Brigade. If you ever don't hear back from me on an email you expect to hear back from, whether it's about this or anything else, it probably means the spam monster ate it or my brain blew up for a few minutes and I might have deleted it by accident or something. Generally, email that you would expect to be answered is answered in no longer than two to four days, two to three, I'm sorry, one to two days. So 24 to 48 hours, depending on whether it's a weekend or not. If you don't hear back from me, hit me again. Uh, I do occasionally probably go lightning fast, clearing out junk emails and, and miss one or two here and there. And uh, just on the volume alone, I can't answer them all. But if it's something you'd expect an answer to, yeah, reach back out to me, guys. I do try to stay in touch with all of you as much as possible. Uh, let us take a look now at the year that was the episode. The year's 1505. We have the vow of Martin Luther, Poland's golden liberty and silver serfdom. Very interesting one. And Bermudez discovers a Bermuda. You can read Poland, golden liberty and silver serfdom. Or Bermuda's Discovering Bermuda on the TSP Wiki if you want to. I'm going to read the vow of Martin Luther. 
This is the year when everything changes for Martin Luther. He has graduated from the University of Erfurt with a master's degree and has entered immediately into law school. His father has picked his path as he returns home for celebration. His father speaks of arranging a marriage. Seeing his future before him with every day looking much like the next, he flees his family to a monastery. Along the way, a thunderstorm rises up and a lightning bolt strikes. He is so frightened, he shouts, Help, dear Saint Anna, I will become a monk. He knows that if he doesn't act soon, he will lose his resolve. So he sells his law books, gives a farewell dinner to his friends, and enters the Augustine Monastery in Erfurt. He's 21 years old. By the time he is 34, he will change the Western world. My take by Alex Shrug that puts these together for us at the TSP Wiki. For those unfamiliar with the significance of Martin Luther, initially he will lead a church reform called the Reformation. By tradition, he will nail his list of demands on the Württemberg church door. It is inspiring, but that was the only was only one account. Other accounts are more sedate. Unfortunately, the church will disagree with Martin Luther, excommunicate him, and the Protestant movement will come into being. You might find this difficult to believe, but despite all the commotion and bad feelings this is going to create, Christianity is going to become a whole lot better overall because of Martin Luther and the many who follow him hanging their eyes on the prize. Um, I have a, two little takes, two short takes for you on this. One, I, I no longer consider myself a, a person attached to any organized religion or faith, but I did grow up Catholic. And I have to tell you that you would think in the Catholic Church, Luther would just be like this guy that, you know, you would just say was terrible. He ruined everything. He, actually, the Catholic Church, uh, when you go through your catechism, your Sunday school, or if you go to full-on Catholic school like I did in just your religious classes, when you study the Reformation, uh, the Catholic Church has a very positive view of Luther, admits that many of the things they were doing were wrong, and actually credits Luther's leaving in the Protestant movement with eventually causing many reforms within the Catholic Church. That's interesting to note. My other take really has nothing to do with religion. It has to do with authority and statism. And in, in this time and place, the church is definitely a form of a state with the ability to do many things that states today can't just do on their own. It was really like a super state overriding many of the other states and city-states and, and fiefdoms and what have you. Anyway, it is no doubt regardless of what your religious beliefs are or are not, that Martin Luther changed the world. And in many ways, changed the world for the better. It's pretty well acknowledged even by those who he rebelled against that he changed even them for the better. But as we've seen many times throughout history, those that actually create change never do so through the current apparatus of authority. They do so through rebellion You don't vote new people in to fix a problem. You re rebel against the problem. You don't put new people in to fix corruption. You rebel against corruption. Earlier this week, I put out a graphic on Facebook of a shark swimming through the water and a little saying that I'm known to have said in the past that uh, was as follows. As long as the party dues system exists, the belief that replacing our current politicians with new politicians will change anything is foolish. It is akin to expecting that the next row of teeth to fill in will change the nature of the shark. 
And I think that many times when you have any existing authority over mankind uh, that is doing something that is wrong or illegal, it is not necessarily the case that that organization in of itself has to completely go away for the problem to be resolved. But the problem must be addressed through rebellion. Rebellion is not always violent. Sometimes it is your own withdrawal. There's many things that I believe are wrong in our nation today that I choose just not to engage in anymore and to speak against. It doesn't mean a, a direct conflict with authority, but simply to rebel against through your unwillingness to participate. And it is in those ways that the greatest differences have been made for good in the world. Just my take by Jack Spierko. Anyway, uh, with that, I do want to introduce our special guest. Before I do, though, I have a little quick couple of announcements for you. Number one, I just got an email from Chef Keith Snow, member of the Expert Council and owner of Harvest Eating, a sponsor of the show. He has a hundred pounds, a hundred pounds of steak seasoning. He calls it Montana steak seasoning. I think he should call it Jack Spirico's steak seasoning. Even though I had nothing to do with the creation of it, I think I've made it world famous because it is so awesome. And I've told so many of you guys so often to buy this stuff. He's got a hundred pounds of it. He's breaking it up into one pound blocks at 20 bucks a pound. Uh, a pound of that stuff goes a long way. I'm going to order a couple pounds today. There's only a hundred pounds at this price. When they're gone, they're gone. I'd consider getting over there and getting some now if you're a fan of it or if you've never tried it. Trust me, your 20 bucks will be well spent. You won't be like, gee, I should have spent like 12 bucks to buy, you know, the, the typical six ounce package, uh, to try it first. No, no. If you get this stuff and you know how to cook a steak anyway, and you put this on your steak and then you cook your steak, you're going to be damn happy with it and probably wish you bought more. So check out Chef Keith's steak seasoning, 100 pounds at 20 bucks a pound. Link in today's show notes. Next. The Permaethos Long-Awaited Plant Propagation Course by Nick Ferguson goes live tomorrow. Uh, we'll have links out and announcements out about how to do that. Those of you who pre-registered, I want to give you some important information here. If you pre-registered for this course, tomorrow you will get a link and a discount code. If you want to buy the course with just getting the discount instead of $350, $300, just use the code. If you didn't pre-register, you're not going to get a code. If you don't receive your code, don't pay the higher price and think you're going to get a refund. Email me and say, I didn't get my code. I'll verify you're on the list and I'll send you the code. Don't try to cheat. I'll know. Okay? Just saying. The next thing, though, is if you want to do a payment plan, the only way we can do the payment plan is with a link to a special page. We can't do the discount and a payment plan. So if you're going to want a discount with the payment plan, in the email you get with your code will also be a link. Use that link only if you want the discount with the payment plan. If you want to pay in full, it costs a little bit less. You can use the link that everybody else gets and the discount code. That's how it's going to work. Those of you that have a discount code for pre-registering for the course, you have 30 days, not 30 minutes, 30 days before that discount code will be deactivated and the special payment page will come down. So if you don't get your email, please do not panic. We will hook you up. Just email me, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Make sure you put TSPC in the subject line and I will get your information back to you. All right. With that, I am now ready to get into the main topic of today's show, which of course is talking to Michael Jordan from the Chicago... No, Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer from Cheyenne, Wyoming. Hey, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. How you doing, bro? 
Hey, Jack. Thanks, man. It's always a, a pleasure to talk to the one and only Jack Spirko. Well, you're Michael Jordan. Didn't you play basketball or something at one time? I mean, or is that a different Michael Jordan? That's just... That's, 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 that's not you. That's a, that's a family history thing, man. I, I'm the one that didn't get to jump. <laughs> well, what you do do is you uh, you do a lot of stuff with bees, right? So can we start out with just a little bit of your background for folks that maybe haven't heard you on the show before? Um, what led you to want to play with a whole bunch of stinging insects in the first place? <laughs> Did you grow up with bees in your bedroom, or is this something you found later in life? What what led you to mess around with things that want to sting us? I I was uh, going through some uh, family apparel after a death in our family, and I found a book that was handwritten in uh, Gaelic ledger. And when I had it deciphered, it was a recipe to make a honey wine. Mm. And I apologize, it's not honey wine, it's mead. Mm-hmm. Right, well, honey wine is wine that's added with mead, and that's blasphemy. So we go with the one. But I got into beekeeping because I had this recipe, and it was a really, really good recipe. And I was going to make a winery and get this out there. I had big dreams of, of doing this, and I got bees and watched YouTube videos and read some books, and everything was contradictory and. I, I I lost everything I had. My bees starved because I was trying to do a holistic method and not feed them. And I got the wrong size bees for the wrong size of foundation. And I was trying biodynamic beekeeping when I should have been doing more of a commercial inlet. And, man, it was just a travesty. I went, I went through a whole bunch of seminars, and I traveled, and I ended up, uh, learning from a man named Jack State, who happened to be a third year, third generation actually beekeeper. He was 80 years old, and he taught me beekeeping in my area. And he told me everything that I needed to do was kind of like how you guys talk about permaculture, location, altitude, climate. He says there are some things there that you just can't learn unless you learn from somebody. So I ended up traveling around and met the huffs that were beekeepers from King Henry VIII, and that got me on this deep-sea journey of traveling around the world and learning beekeeping, and when I came back, it worked, and I went to extreme measures, and I was doing really well, and I found out that the bees were dying, that there was no more beekeepers, and so I changed, and I uh, wrote programs to get kids to be youth beekeepers. And I donated hives to beekeepers at Lost Hives and Katrina and downsized my operation to be a more ethical beekeeper. And I ended up becoming the bee whisperer because I put cell phones in beehives so to see if that was killing them. And I got picked up by the Discovery Channel, and we did some interviews and helped pick out some topics, and I became the bee whisperer. And I'm a, I'm a bee advocate, man. I... I think everybody should have a beehive, and I think it can be a little profitable home business for people or an education venue for your kids. And that, that's my background of beekeeping for, in a summary, for 15 years. That's, that's what I've been doing. And, and it's had a, a monumentous change on in, in your whole life and way of living, hasn't it? 
Beekeeping? Yeah. Beekeeping has uh, taught me that I am a parasite on this planet. <laughs> that I've never that I've never seen anything that is so small, so dedicated for a cause. And our cause is so selfish and so me, 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 iPhone, iPod, iPad, me, me stuff. And I've, these things work so hard to build something that they never see. After I've watched them, and I can understand why Langstroth watched them forever, just watching how they communicate to each other and watch them bring in this teardrop of nectar over 26 days and then die, and that's their whole life. <laughs> Is is the miraculous? You just you just think to yourself, here is this little insect, and its whole vitality is for its colony. And here I am on this planet, and my whole thing is to be buried in a box and never give anything back. You know, that's that's it. Really made me think of changing my. It changed my whole life from the the person that I was 15 years ago. That I am. I, I believe that you should be able to. Take stuff given to you, no matter if it's broken or because or, man, bees will live anywhere. It doesn't have to be a brand new beehive. It can be the trash can, man. And to and, and watching these things, man, I've learned that you should be able to do anything with everything you got and win. And I've taken those concepts and I've I've made my family life smaller, uh, more economical, where you don't have Dad, my kids do not watch TV. They're outside more, and they're more interactive not only with, with like, the neighbors and more kids on their block, which is a big change. I can actually tell where my kids are because the bikes are parked out front now. <laughs> uh, they're out, they, they do stuff. This, this colonization and me watching these bees has made it not only, you know, it's financially good for me. It gets me outside. It uh, makes me want to give more to more people because, man, I, I've never, I've, I can't experience it unless you've been out there. You've worked your bees, and, and it's a nerve-wracking experience when you first go out there. It's intimidating. It's extreme. And once you get into it, it is enlightening and so peaceful to be outside and to see these things just working and working and working and working. Yeah, it's been a very life-changing experience and made me want to have a family and a colony of my own and everything. It's been, it's been phenomenal. You know, I've just started keeping bees this year myself, as you know, because you set up my hives for me. And I, I didn't really have any intimidation initially working with them. I've been stung by bees. I'm one of these people that if I get a sting, I have almost, it hurts, but I don't have any reaction so far anyway. I've been stung a few times. It's not that big a deal to me. Um, but the first time I was really intimidated, I was working with my mentor, Jason, and we had taken a hive pretty far apart to check on some things. And when they come up on you, and they're not really upset with you yet, you, you know what I'm saying, because you have years of experience with this. But when they're just kind of letting you know, hey, we know you're here, and we're not totally cool with what you're doing right now, and they start kind of ramming into your veil, uh, <laughs> they're all around you, and a few of them are giving you that headbutt thing, and you're like, yeah, you know, I'm not afraid to get stung by a bee. I don't really think I'd like to be stung by like 400 of them that find a way into my suit, though. And even when you're suited up right, you can get one or two in there. It can happen, but you're probably not going to have that problem. But you start to have this, 
And you learn something about yourself because you learn, okay, not only do I have to work through this fear, I have to control it because the more I allow this fear to come up inside of me, the more I'm telling the bees something's wrong, they can smell me at a level that I could never understand. And when I'm upset, they're upset. So now I have to learn how to be in an intimidating situation and be cool and okay with it. Because if I'm cool and okay with it, all of a sudden they chill and they're cool and okay with it. And that's something, I don't know if there's any other activity, other than I guess I've worked a lot with, with venomous snakes, but snakes don't work that way, man. If a snake's, if a snake's pissed, it's pissed. You're not going to chill it out. You can understand it. But bees actually seem to respond to you as you chill, they chill. Usually, anyway. Otherwise, Mike's giving them a red tag, and you can tell folks what that's about. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you said you said the key thing, and I, I, you know, I was a private contractor for the Army Corps of Engineers, and I, I, I'm a fuel specialist. And it was get in, do the job, get out, and you had no time to do anything, but you you did your job. Sure. And working with bees, like you said, sometimes you you have to step back, and then you take a breath. It's it's okay to back. The whole deal with working with the bees in the first place was to experience them. Uh, I mean, we've got so far in advance with industrialization that it, it, it's changed, and that's why we have problems. But the spiritual essence, uh, I truly believe that Mother Nature called to me and said, you, you have to take these bees. Because I've worked with people, and I've worked where they... They work through hives with a veil on, no gloves, no nothing else on, and they'll go through 50 beehives in about three hours. And I mean, really seriously, looking at them, and it's like the bees don't even know they're there. They're like ghosts. They're so spiritual that this is just, we're just going through, we're going to make sure everybody's not sick. Oh, you, you're a little low on feed. I see you're a little bit low on brood. We're, we're helping, we're helping everybody. And it, and when you step back and you watch those kind of people, it's a big, it's a big difference. Yeah. And there are bees that are extremely aggressive just by nature. I mean, you know, the Africanized bees by by breeding principles are aggressive by breeding principles. They are made to be protective. And when you're in the Mediterranean belt of the world, you know, you have way more predators than the fat beekeeper coming over. You have, you know. There's birds of that that are bee killers that you have to be a little more protective of your queen. So they span out further and they are more aggressive. And I've worked with them. Uh, you know, your neighbor Jason's worked with them. You know, it's, it's it's they are aggressive. And you know, we you know you do you do a system where you start eliminating the queens out of those hives. You start getting them to breed in queens with a lower genetic load to to tolerance. You know. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a form of uh, communism. <laughs> it is. We're it gonna, is you know, like communism. I mean, just... all right. You know, they're only working for one cause, and we're going to try to make them for a cause that's, you know, not. It, it, it's it's good. You know, I'm in the inner city. I got little kids that play in my backyard that are four or five feet away. You know, twenty five beehives. So to have those kids, you know, I don't. I want them to be experiencing the bees without them being experiencing the fear of something that's way aggressive that doesn't have to be. So, yeah, you know, the, the going out there and working with those bees and they're head-butting you, it's okay to step back, breathe a little air, remember that, you know, 
Seth Holter said, you got you to gotta just take in what you see sometimes before you change. So you just take that in, and you just, then you can go right back to it. Definitely. So you brought up, you know, kind of your living conditions. So you live in town, so you're, you're building what you call like an urban farm at this point. Uh, what made you decide to go there? Why not, you know, look for five acres outside of town or something like that? I have I have a 40-acre retreat up in the mountains, and I'm working on it very slowly. It was a family passed down thing that I that I have that I work on. But in the inner city, I have I have kids that go to school. I'm in Wyoming. We drive an hour, and you won't see anybody. Where you are, you'll drive for an hour, and you might go three or four towns, see things sporadically. We don't have anything. So moving into the town where the kids were easier to go to school and to run a business was easier for me. Uh, when I got into, into the, into town, I wanted to be in the, in the city limits because of where, where I'm from in, in Wyoming. That like, so there's nothing here. The wind blows all of our trash to Nebraska. That's why it's so beautiful here. So it's, it was, it was the rule setting that I'm from. And I ended up getting a, a parcel of property that's like 12 to 13 blocks from the state capitol that was zoned as a residential, industrial, commercial business. And uh, I picked it up. It was burnt down. And when I when I started getting into beekeeping, that's kind of like how I changed and got this property when I moved back. It was all like one big thing. It was like I said before, you can take anything broken, whatever it is, and you can make it. Winning, you can win. It just takes, you know, persistence. So I, I got this property, and we started doing this beekeeping in in Cheyenne, Wyoming, based on these principles that I put together. And I made it to where the property that I bought, I bought so cheap that I was able to pay it off. And I started building it from plate things from like when they build a hotel. I, I, the siding you're going to throw away and, you know, siding to them, man, redid my whole house and it was scrapped to them. So I started building this house just like how the bees would, just whatever I, whatever was there I was, I was going with. And I ended up building this little urban farm homestead that had actually, I found out, had two cistern wells on it after digging around on it. And I, put my bees there and the bees basically now all the products that they do I've learned that I don't want to be the millionaire that I've learned to be uh, stable but the bees all their products I sell out of every year and Nick Ferguson said man you're way too cheap you should never sell out but I sell everything that I can that I make and I don't make any more than that I make what I need and I only and I only make enough to be profitable for what I have to use. So all my utility bills and stuff are paid for my bee business. Uh, so we just have to work the little bees, and the money pays for the foam, the trash, the sewer, the water. And, and, and it's you know we're not super wealthy, but we don't have to really do anything. Hmm. And I've learned that that system is so good. With you know, and I hear John. Uh, uh, investment gentleman. I don't have met with his name. Yes, he's a very good guy. When I talk to him, and, you know, when you talk about being financially stable, and he talks about it, it's not being super extreme wealthy. It's talking about getting out of debt, 
you get out of debt. I got out of debt. There's a few of us that got out of debt. And the spiritualization is that it's not the want of mankind that I want. It's just to be able to be cool, right? So, you know, you go out, you do your chickens. I go out, do my chickens and quail. You know, the guy outside of town that I know, he does ostriches. I mean, once you once you figure out, like, a little niche and you can just, you know, I, I never realized that a job was supposed to be work until I got out of the, uh, out of a, into a private sector of my own that it shouldn't be work. My hobby's my job. I enjoy my hobby, and it is work. You know, I'm up in the morning and up all night, you know, when you're doing cleanings or you're spinning honey or, damn, you got to repitch the wort for the mead. You know, it's all hours of the night to do stuff. But it's some of the most fun and exciting stuff to do, and I enjoy it. So this little urban homestead based on my beekeeping has made it to where my family is. Uh, uh, we are so together. It is so good. We're financially, you know, secure. We we both work for the school district. I work at night as a custodian and a security officer, and I do beekeeping. And when I'm not traveling doing beekeeping, we do things as a family at home. And it's it's been really good for beekeeping and if you like home study, if you're a homeschool person, and I talked to the, uh, uh, from Permis kids and how they do stuff. And if you're homeschooling and you can get kids to, to do stuff like this, you can teach them a business all the way from reading and writing to accounting to how to order things, to sell products. I mean, it's, it's a full schooling entity. And that's, that's what I've done with my beekeeping. And, after coming and seeing your workshops and going to Permaethos and talking to Diego and uh, a little bit in out with Paul Wheaton and Joel Saltman and talking to these people, it can be done with anything. You can start finding bicycles on Craigslist, uh, putting them together, and next thing you know, every month you're getting an extra $1,000 income from recycling bicycles that you find. And it's an income, and you might have been a cyclist and enjoyed it. It is the case. I mean, I hear people all the time tell me, you don't understand how hard it is. And I, I, I often think, I don't think you understand how easy it is. And I think it's one of those things like, imagine you never learned to ride a bike when you were a child. You had, you had no idea how to ride a bicycle or a motorcycle or anything on two wheels. You just had no idea whatsoever. If you tried to get on that thing with no understanding of what it was and ride it the first time, you're going to do the same thing you probably did when you were a little kid. You're going to eat the dirt. And it seems hard, it seems hard, and then you sort of kind of feel a little bit, and then boom, bam, it's done. And once you do it, you can put that bike away, not see one for 20 years. Pick one up, get on it, and ride down the street with it. And I think the establishment of business that produces a reasonable profit is much the same thing. That once you understand it, the principles behind it, there's always somebody out there willing to do business with you. There's always a value you can create, whether it's with a beehive or uh, harvesting stuff off Craigslist and repurposing or whatever it is. There's always somebody to sell it to if you market it properly. And once you understand that, you're almost like, I don't understand why everybody doesn't do this. It, it almost doesn't make sense to you, and it's, it's as easy as riding a bike at that point. You can still fail. You can still get hurt. I'm sure you've had wrecks of your own, right? But... It's always possible. As long as you're here, it's always possible. And once you know that, there's no – you can't flip the switch off ever again. 
Well, you, you, you've talked to me, you know, with your uh, sections of Jack that, you know, you always have to have room to expand. And I'm all, you know, I expanded so big that it was way out of control. I was trying to make all my money back, and it was way out of control. I lost partners. I mean, the money is the fruit of all evil for sure. That's that's always for sure. But once I got down to where I can figure out that it's not the plan, and it's the, it's the ability to want it. The plan will fall in. Uh, my father told me, he says, if a guy gives you an opportunity, don't say no. He says, say yes. He says, if you fail, no, you fail. He says, if, if you if you jump in there and you get it, he says, anything that you do and learn from it is more than you ever had. He says, so really look at that as an opportunity. So if you really want to get out and, 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 and I want to tie fly fishing flies. I'm a fly fisherman. I, I want to, man, I, I've been tying whirly worms my whole life and royal coachmen, and I want to get into something good. I can do this. It just takes a little bit of your, of, of your time. And that's when people say, oh, well, I don't have time. Man, time, I have, I have 15,000 more days in my life. It's going to make me about 86 years old. I got, I got time in there. I'm sure I can figure out an hour in there somewhere. Well, I can maybe try to tie a fly to see if I can sell it. The business plans come. You learn those as you, as you fail. And, and I, I always tell people you fail. And failure is a good thing. But don't set yourself up for failure or a huge failure. And that's what I learned. That was, the, that was the huge mistake that I made was that, you know, a bank will give you a loan for almost anything. And they'll give you a loan for any amount of money. And... When you jump in and you jump in big, you know, people always say go big or go home. Be make sure you know what you're doing before you go big. Or you'll be playing you'll be playing this catch up game with credit cards and bankruptcy claims and all kinds of stuff just try just because you wanted to do something. It takes nothing to save your aluminum cans and turn them in at fifty cents a pound and walk home with thirty dollars. Take that thirty dollars and buy some fishing hooks and butcher a chicken and have some hackle and practice. Next thing you know, you you might be out at the local gas station selling those. Just don't go buy a whole bunch of equipment on a on a whim because you're going to do this and people are doing it. Work into it. It's uh it's supposed to be fun. <laughs> for a while, the beekeeping wasn't fun for me. It was work, and it was it wasn't. Anything I wanted to do for a while. So I, I think that if you just take those and you really look at what, what you want to get out of it is what you put into it. But put in a good slow foundation, that way it grows to be a good strong building. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit more about your homestead? We, we know you obviously have bees there. You mentioned quail. <laughs> I saw some pictures of you with turkeys on Facebook. How big is uh, your property that's in the city, not your retreat property? And, and um, what, do you, what do you have going on there? Well, the property I have in Cheyenne, Wyoming, this is about 0.3 acres. Okay. It's about a corner. It's about a corner block. You can Google it and look at it. You know, it's no secret where I live. I tell people to stop by. Come look at the fiasco going on. Because, uh, you know, the billing department does, the zoning department does, the game and fish does. Uh, 
anybody that that thinks that they have to have a permit or get paid will. So you can feel free to Google it, look on it. You're more than welcome to see how big it is. But I have a big garage in the back that I've turned into three separations. One's a working garage that I just stole and work, you know, build motorcycles, whatever in. And then it has a honey room to process and spin honey down. And then it has a uh, tack room that I've uh, made into a, a slaughter and butcher room. It's got a wash-down facility, so you can wash stuff. Uh, and then I've got my house sitting there. It's not very big. Like I said, it's all being refurbished and built whatever I can find because I'm frugal, cheap. <laughs> so I do whatever I can. And I have uh, meat production from rabbits, quail, chicken, turkey, uh, I wanted to get into aquaponics, but I just can't see the affordability for me to get into that yet because the smaller systems are way too hard to manage. But I would like to do aquaponics. I have a greenhouse that we build and transfer from. Uh, the property's made to uh, pull the water in off the street. That when it rains or snows, all the water that runs down the street, I've made it and diverted. That was a zoning issue at one time, but I've made the water run in. And I've made it to where the rabbits are self-sustainable, not sufficient, but sustainable to where they actually can almost pay for themselves. Uh, the chickens are, are don't cost me nothing except for the feed form. I don't really, I can't free range them all through my front yard because of the the city ordinance that we can't have uh, birds in the city. So I can't I can't do those things. So they they run in tractor units and movable pens throughout my backyard. Uh, the turkeys run freely in my backyard, but uh, we, we we try to get uh, six to ten turkeys and just have them run over there. They're my lawn mowing unit and my uh, predator control for the bees. They keep they keep the skunks away, the foxes and the raccoons. And uh, we have uh, let's see the rat, the quail. The quail's brand new, man. That was super awesome. I got that out of barter blanket at your place. These little Texas A and M white quail. They breed like crazy. They're super good eating. Man, that was a super good barter. Thanks, thanks, Big John. I will say that one. But yeah, I got some, uh, got this little homestead that produces its meat. And, uh, last year we produced 30% of our uh, food by gardening in the front yard and then a lot in the street. So I, I'm the urban rebel <laughs> at downtown. Very, very cool. Uh, you talk a lot about building a business, and you have, like, just laundry list of ways that bees can produce income for people. Could you – don't try to do all of it, but could you go through, I don't know, half a dozen uh, profit centers that people wouldn't think of with bees? I mean, obviously, honey is a yield, but there's value-added things that can be done with honey or wax, but there's just this tremendous amount of – ways that a person that learns how to keep bees and keeps I think you told me that you believe that a person could produce a full-time income with 50 hives uh, what are some of the ways a person well, can do that well most definitely uh first off uh, 50 beehives I want you to calculate each beehive being at uh, 300 bucks a piece that's with the package of bees and the equipment you're going to use so you know when you have a hundred beehive or, 50, or 10 beehives that you're running at you know, three hundred dollars a piece. That's that's an investment. That's three grand. So you know, you're you're going to make a, a tremendous investment. But I want you to build to that. I don't think that you should just jump in. 
50 beehives, then you can say you're you're doing well. You're going to be doing extremely well as, as a business. But uh, I'm going to Permaculture Voices, and I'm going to be talking about some alternative businesses that people don't get with beekeeping. And, you know, I, I think a big business that's coming out that people haven't seen is I think you should really look into pollen. With all the GMO foods and all the stuff and how we traffic the bees around the country, uh, if you could actually make your pollen in what we call a reverse trap and put the pollen in front of the beehives, you can actually bring pollen for like cucumbers to the bees for them to take out and already start doing your own super heirloom by bringing your own pollen. I think there's going to be some pollen companies that are going to be coming out doing this for big beekeeping to do some pollination. And I think it's going to be used in greenhouse. Just from some of the stuff that I've seen in it, I think this type of pollen, dry pollen, it came from China. These people are drying these pollen and, and shipping it so they can pan-pollinate fruit trees. Uh, they've devastated the bees in, in China because of uh, pesticides and things. So it's they're, they're doing this hand pollination. So I think anything with pollen, building new pollen traps for beehives, collecting pollen and selling them for people that do, uh, you know, like me and Nick Ferguson, we do a little odd brewing where we use pollen for some some natural fermentation, uh, pollen for bee boost, uh, come out with your own pollen patty. Pollen, I think pollen is going to be a big thing that's going to be coming out in the bee, in the bee business. That's one of them. I think another one's going to be local packaged bees. Uh, most of your big bee market is made from these people that have uh, thousands of beehives and they're bringing shit back from California. You've got good genetics, bad genetics, but they're only in certain locations. In Wyoming, you know, we don't have big package bee business. They're swarm catching and, you know, sometimes I make a good little profit by selling some nukes and stuff when I split my hives. And that's, I think if somebody got into doing local package bees that you're not really concerned about your honey production or things like that, that you're a package bee seller that we have 10 beehives and we split those three times a year and each one of those is sold at $150 a pop, you, you're you living at home and you're not uh, working anymore, man. That's, uh, you know, you can expand your operation with your own splits if you need to or, you know, sell them all. I think, I think selling local bees that are used to your climate, location, good sustainable queen farming, those are going to be big businesses. Um, you know, back to honey, Every you know, that's big controversial, but dehydrating your honey down. Uh, people are like, you know, that, that heats it, it gets the enzymes out, but uh, I'm going to let you know, paleo people are buying it by the bulk. I, I powder some of mine out and it's gone. Uh I, I make it into like a candy taffy, and I'm using it now for my brewing because you're already going to heat up the honey. And we all know that it takes three pounds of honey uh, for one gallon of water. Hint for you mead brewers. But if you're dehydrating it down, the pound is a pound. You're not, it is super saturated sugar. So dehydrating honey is going to be a good, marketable uh, aspect for people that are beekeepers. And one thing, I was just at a bee convention, you know, I had a friend that went to California for the National Bee uh, Conference, and I'm a, I'm invented my own beehive that's been used. A couple of my friends that, you know, I've, that I've worked with that have got beehives that are out there 
doing some things, but if you have a CNC machine and you're good with it, take some of these beehives and do some intricate stuff with them. Buy, uh, you know, a couple of these boxes from uh, Man Lake or Gannett or Brushy Mountain Bee Farm. Get some of their nice, uh, good boxes. Run through your CNC machine and make some elegant design. Sell them. Uh, you would not believe the backyard beekeepers that are going through great extents, you know, to beautify their yards and to have a box or a top bar beehive out there that, you know, they paint. You know, something that if you've come out with something with a good copper top that, 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 uh, patinas and you're throwing some yogurt on the side and it's got moss with these intricate designs, you're going to sell them. And that's not really beekeeping. That's a, that's a commercial business on like woodworking or metal fabrication. So there's, there's a whole other end that, you know, that I talked about that you don't even have to have the bees to, to keep them. And another big business is Mason beekeeping. That, uh, Due to the fact that beekeeping is coming so popular and people are very scared of it, uh, mason bees are coming popular because they don't sting. So building these types of beehives, teaching that type of beekeeping, uh, propagating and selling those types of bees, uh, that's a whole other entity, a whole other business. And, you know, those are some, those, you know, that's not honey, wax, uh, pollen, pollination, I mean, uh, mead making, uh, chips, chapstick, sell your stuff to the local wax, to the local school district, to their school, screen, uh, string instruments. Sorry, Ralph was getting a little dry there. Hold on. But, you know, you get the, you, the products that come from those things are very valuable, sold all the time, and if it's a good raw product, people will come back. And eventually, you're either going to have to really expand your operation and really, really make it work for you, or you eventually start making waiting lists and telling people, you know, these are some beekeepers that I'd recommend because I basically have my clientele now, and I, I would love to help you. I know you would want to buy my product, but these are people that, that I know that, that make it good. You know, they, they sell queens, too. You should – I'm sold. I, I'm sold out. I try to do as much as I can. Sometimes we have an exponentialist year, and we co-op with some other beekeepers, and we get more product out. And we hit those other people. We hit them back up and say, you know, you asked. And, well, sure, you know. And, but, uh, you know, those little aspects of beekeeping, are, I think those are big big areas that are going to be hitting here shortly. Yeah, I'll tell you one that I've t- discussed with Jason, and he just, I don't know, he's too happy, I guess. He doesn't need more business. But I've <laughs> suggested that somebody become the bee man the way that you have a pool man. Right? So I have this pool. I could maintain it myself. But it doesn't cost me very much money to have somebody else do it. And in this case, it's my son that does the work for me. But you know, he's building his business doing that. So I want a pool. I want to float my butt in my pool in the summer. And, and I have a business to run, a homestead to run. It's one more thing to do. I want somebody to take care of that for me. So I don't have to do Jack Diddley crap, but float my butt in my pool and enjoy my pool. That's why I put it in. I didn't put it in there to work on it. I put it in there to float in it. And I actually put it in there because my wife likes to float in it a heck of a lot more than I do. I don't really, I probably wouldn't have one if it was just me. But given that's the case, I pay somebody to take care of it. <laughs> there are people 
that are not of the commercial level where they would pay you to put, you know, I know that's another business uh, resource where beekeepers will actually bring hives to an orchard, set them up to do pollinization, you know, for a season. But there are people with homesteads ranging from uh, small city homesteads to five, six acres. There's even some that you would say are probably of the small commercial side, pick your own operations. All They want bees. They want bees on their property and they'd like some honey and some product. They don't want to jack with bees. They don't want to mess with bees. They just want the bees to be there. They want them to be healthy. They want them to be happy. They want them to provide habitat. And my belief is, especially when you have enough density of population, a city like Dallas, Houston, Atlanta, et cetera, there's enough people that want bees, that a guy could have 50 to 100 hives all remotely located, not a single one on his uh, property except what he needs for his own individual work and what have you, and charge people a fee for monthly maintenance, and every day go handle X number of hives and do whatever needs to be checked on and messed around with and adjusted. And then each spring you're dividing hives because you're preventing them from swarming and leaving and making more that you can put on more properties and that there could probably be some sort of a, of a, of a product split as well because most homeowners have no idea what you get out of three hives. Well-managed hives with lots of uh, feed in the area. It's a tremendous amount more than most individuals would use for themselves so the beekeeper could be making money developing product producing more hives creating nukes packages to sell out and charging a fee to do it and to me that just seems like i've never heard of anyone doing it but i bet you if i had somebody willing to do it here in dallas the dallas fort worth area and i put it on the air that they'd have a hundred people lining up tomorrow saying come put bees on my property we help do that. <laughs> There's a guy in New Jersey, his name's Adam, and he does that, and he's like the leader of the New Jersey Beekeepers Association. He's a phenomenal guy, and he does that because of his location. And you're right, like in your area of Dallas or Fort Worth where, you know, you you could drive 20 blocks and be in another location, and it depends on laws and variances of beekeeping. And you can even step that business one more step further. Uh, find a restaurant that wants to do its own local honey production right there at its business to, you know, right now I sell to a granola company. I sell a majority of my honey to them. They picked me up for a natural granola. But if you were a restaurant and you had, uh, we made baklava, we used uh, honey in our hams and in our uh, peach uh, cordonet for our birds. We, you know, if you had a business and where, where, where do you guys buy your honey from? You that observation hive right there on that wall. They could actually see the bees working at the restaurant. Oh wow! Through a glass thing. Yeah, those are some things that we've worked on. Uh, we have one in Colorado that we've worked on. And these people, that way, people are looking and they're fascinated. You would not believe the draw-in that you get just by having these observation hives at your establishment. And to work on, you know, to to do that, you know, we tell people it's a dollar fifty or dollar fifty-five a mile. To come, we try not to get more than a hundred miles out of our, our area because it's just cost efficiency. Sure. And we usually do what we call you buy the you buy the setup, we tend the bees, and it's a fifty fifty split. So if you bought the packages of bees, you bought the hive, you bought all the stuff to set it up. I'll come out, and I'll manage them to make a good product for them. And yeah, you can do that where I'm at. It's too rural. I mean, yeah. You know, I like got Cheyenne or not, but like yeah, if you're in downtown. You could probably hit four or five locations in a day 
probably spin out, you know, 60 pounds of honey every week and be down at your farmer's market on the weekend, hanging out, having a home brew, selling product, you know, and then turning around and giving half to the guy and he's bought all the beehives and you're walking around with your hive. All you had to do is suit up and spin honey. And you're basically yep. being paid to do your job and to sell your product at that point. You have created a multiple income uh, stream. And I, I think you would have a pretty good retention rate of the client because most people that are going to do this in the first place are going to be people that don't really want to take over working on the hive. That's that's why they've asked you to do it. And I think for a lot of people, I know you want to spread beekeeping like to every nook and cranny of the planet. You want everybody <laughs> to do it. But let's be honest. There's people that they're not – they're just not going to do it. In fact, you'll tell people when they say they want to start taking on beekeeping, well, come out and get stung because I'm not going to give you bees until you come out with me and work with me. Again. So I want to make sure that you want to do this. And if I set you up with right. and, you, and you change your mind and you don't want them anymore, I'm going to charge you twice what I charge you right. to, come out to come take them away. Because, That's right. Right? So You've got so, – You know that people – there are some people that it's just not what they need to be doing. There's people who – have a sensitivity that, that just don't need to be stung. And if you work with bees, sooner or later you're going to get stung. I mean, I've worked with mine, take the lid off, pull up frames, look at them, not get stung over and over again, decide I'm going to feed them, go to put the sugar water jar in, walk around behind the hive. Everybody's cool. Everybody's chill. One bee is probably old, sick, and tired, and miserable. He's sitting on a blade of grass. I've brushed my leg up against her, and she stings me. Right, she's just mad, old, tired, and doesn't care anymore. So you 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 pitched me at the wrong time. So you're gonna get stung. It's it's something you have to accept. You're not gonna suit up every time you get near your hive. And with that reality, there's people that are just not gonna do it. So that's an opportunity for the people who will. And you know very well that you're a better beekeeper today than you were even a year ago. That there is a certain level of professionalism and knowledge that you develop over time. And and masters are really good at their crafts, and that's why they get paid well to do them. Man, I, uh, when I took martial arts, man, the guy that taught me was Master Patterson Cho. And we always say Master Cho, and he says, no, it's just Cho, because when you mastered it, that means that you're kind of good at that. The master beekeeper, I think that, I share my knowledge with other beekeepers. I'm a beak. Uh, beak stands, it's B-E-E-K. You might hear, you hear more of that. You're going to start hearing that a lot. It's called beak. And they're bees, environmentally educating keepers. And, and we're, we're going back to Langstroth. But you're going to have to sit out there, and you're going to have to play with them, and you're going to have to learn about bee space, how he did. You're going to have to learn techniques and variances that, I learned more and have forgotten more and then relearn it in a different manner that, I, you know, I, I was doing a queening method that I didn't know there was a name for it. And I learned it from a guy in Turkey, and now it's so far in advance that, you know, it's called a Miller queening method, and now there's you use that method with a splitting method with a larva punch method, and you can punch out queens 400 of them in a day and do it naturally. I mean, where... If you want to spend the time and do it, you know, I was really impressed how some people, yeah, the knowledge is, is always overflowing. Um, the products that come out, like I said, the, the pollen stuff that I'm talking about, I said, 
be aware of it. With the GMO cropping and stuff, with them taking out the male stamen and stuff out of plants so you can't get seed, this stuff's going to be coming big. So those are, you know, those are things that people do not ever think about when it comes to beekeeping. Uh, and like I said, that's a business that, that I do for my little urban homestead that has had super tremendous value for me. Uh, when you keep, you keep on talking about someone coming to Kermit Ethos and doing quail, after I've done my little quail and stuff, I see that as a, you know, because how my mind works now with business, uh, Kind of like how you see permaculture, you go by a park, that's how I'm doing that. I'm going by this museum, oh, I'm going to do it like that. Now I see business like these small entity businesses, like I said, bicycles. With these quail, I could see some guy pickling quail eggs and selling them at every local bar in his neighborhood. Oh, dude, those are so <laughs> flipping fantastic. I went to this little uh, farmer's market here in Fort Worth. And it was mostly vegetables and eggs. And it's like the middle of summer. I got like vegetables and eggs coming out of my brains. But, you know, you always get taken in by the relishes and the prepared stuff. I always buy stuff like that, you know. And I go down and I find these jalapeno pickled quail eggs. They're like, when you're drinking beer, they're like crack. And then I find out you don't even have to peel them. Because when you pickle a quail egg, it basically dissolves the shell because it's so thin. I think you could get half a city addicted to those things. And like you said, every bar room, uh, you might have some noxious uh, uh, methane production because of it. But my God, those are, and it's such an easy thing to do. And they're so ridiculously productive. I mean, it's insane what a, what a quail does. Um, the, the ones that I got when I was down at, at the barter blanket, I never heard of. Never knew anything about him, and he took me aside and he told me, he said, these are called Texas A&M white quail. He said, this is the king of quail. I was like, okay, and he goes, no, I'm serious. He says, you know, they're called the, 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 the 15 or the 30-day quail. Every 30 days, an uh, egg hacks, uh, uh, the quail will lay an egg. I said, every 30 days it lays one egg, and he goes, no, from... It hatching to 30 days, it's going to start laying eggs. Wow. He said 15 days, you know, he says they're, they're hatching. In 15 more days, they're laying, and in 15 more days, he says you can kill them. He says they're not going to be very big. So then he showed me this, this system of them. They're all white meat, uh, one male quail to four females. He showed me this rack system that was uh, three foot long, a foot tall, a foot wide. And he was, I mean, oh, my God, the, the quail that you could produce. I, I was going through, like, all the business opportunities that you could Just think if you processed it and made a really good quail recipe, like a stuffing, and then you went to, like, some restaurant that's in town that around here we call it Poor Richard's. It's a little uppity-up restaurant. It's the only one of its kind. And you said, hey, man, how about I just be the only guy? I got my, my license from the ag department for clean cell of butchering. And how about I just sell this to you and you put it on your item and I'll produce quail for you and this would be, you'd be the only one that had it. Not to mention, you know, you're the only place here in town. You're the only one that has it in town. Not to mention probably the only one in the state. By me, right here, organically raised quail for, for you, there's a business and you'd just be at home feeding all day. Just feed and get, a, you know, a couple guys come and help you butcher, you know, every couple of weeks. That's a, that'd be a money maker right there. I can see that one turning over into a huge business. 
Yeah, and it's it, it, the, what I like about that is that it's the type of thing that you you're not competing with everybody and their mother. So we started selling eggs here. And we really upped our chicken head count heavily so that we could do that. Because I didn't want to start selling eggs and then have people calling us going, I want eggs, and go, well, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. That's not good for building a market. You have to have inventory because people just feel like, I'd love to buy their eggs, but they never have any. So, you know, what have you. We've also brought the ducks in. Well, we have far less ducks than chickens. And it took about five seconds to figure out we should get rid of all the chickens, which they're slowly going away now, and replace them with ducks. Because since there's not everybody and their mother selling ducks uh, in duck eggs, that's where the demand is. And we have people that will drive 50 miles to get three dozen duck eggs. <laughs> and if we're selling them for six bucks, do you really think a person that's willing to drive 50 miles to get three dozen duck eggs is going to balk if I raise the price to eight bucks? They're not even going to think about it. Because there's more money in the gas tank than in the eggs. And they're buying them because they have kids that are allergic to chicken eggs. Or, frankly, they've tried a duck egg and they go, I don't ever want to eat a chicken egg again. So I think that the, the right niches are about going into the areas where maybe it's not really an unusual product, but it's not heavily available in your area. So I don't know anywhere where you can just get all the quail you want whenever you want them. I, I really don't, unless you're growing them for yourself. That's kind of a niche market, yet it has mainstream appeal, if that makes sense. Oh, totally. And, and like you said, you I don't think that people are going to mind. Uh, Dick Ferguson freaked out. He said, what are you selling honey for? And he said, ah, it depends if I'm nice or not. I said, this year, well, it was a good year, so we're selling at $8 a pound. And he goes, well, how much have you got left? I said, well, it's gone. He goes, well, we should raise the price. And I said, well, they said everybody got what they wanted. <laughs> yeah. They said I didn't have anybody ask for any extra, and everything's gone, and I already have people asking, well, can you get me on the list for next year? Next year, if we get the same out, maybe I'll go 10. He said, you know, it's one of those things to, you know, I, I sell out, but I, I was lucky. I got picked up by a granola company. Like, so I, I'm, I have a mead recipe that, you know, I'm working with a guy right now. He's building the world's biggest mead hall outside of Wyoming. Wow. It's the, world, it's the Guinness Book of World Records is coming to measure. He's got to finish the staircase so it can be completed, and you have to live in it <laughs> So he, for them to accept it. So he's working on it, and it's outside of Wyoming here. So we're you know, I'm still in the works of making a great mead to get out to the public. And am I going to produce uh, enough to be like, I don't know, gallows? No. We're going to produce what our highest produce. I still got my honey contract with the granola company. I still have my family and friends and my neighbors that rely on me for their local raw honey. I've got the music department at my school that likes the wax. I got a hunting company that buys the wax for the bows. And then we sell packaged bees. Whatever's left over, I make mead with. And if I ever decide to sell that mead, you're going to pay 35 to $75 for a gallon bottle. Sure. I'm sorry. And if it's gone that year, get on the list, dude. Up my price. Tell me that you want a case of it for $100 a bottle. Hell, you'll be the first on my list. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're going to buy it. But, I mean, if, if, you know, if I sell out, and, and I'm also, like I said, I, I, I consider myself a changed. I used to use people. I I, you know, I, I, I was not a great man, but now I've learned that 
it's not all about what I have to offer. It's what everybody has to offer. So when I'm out, I, I say, you should go to this guy and see if he has any. And people go, why would you sell your business so much? I say, because you're going to come back to me, dude. I'm honest. Sure, sure. It's, I'm, not, I'm not screwing you out of anything. It's not going to try to steal your business. I'm trying to get you a good product from another beekeeper that I know that does a good job. And, you know, eventually, like, so we got, there's a company just in Greeley, Colorado, that they started out kind of how I am. And they're big now, and they're called Rice's Honey. And all the local beekeepers take all their honey to them to sell. They ended up making a prologue. But this guy ended up not even having any beehives anymore. That He was just processing right all these guys' honey and, and selling this honey to, you know, he sold it to Walmart for all these guys. Now, he got a contract with Walmart. Right, so all these guys are now doing really good, and they're just little bitty beekeepers, and well, we just take art and we get our percentage from Rice's honey. Right, I mean, those are that's phenomenal, right? Just to jump into a, a gamut of a co-op market, and now you're you're competing with the big dogs. I mean, wow, that's good stuff. Absolutely. So, what are what are your you're always doing something? Where are you going from here? What are your plans next? Are you are you tapped out or? You got plans for future growth. Oh, I'm I'm still looking at you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I wanna uh to to be really honest, in the next five years I'm hoping that my kids are old enough to where they can kinda get into high school and stuff. I got one that's in high school getting ready to come out and I, the youngest one's just turning seven. So I'm hoping here in the next five years that I can get him to where he's pretty stable and we might uh Move, man. Make an adventure. This is a... Uh, humans are nomadic by nature. If I can do this here at this scheme, I can do this anywhere. I, I really admire Jeff Lawton and stuff, that you can do this stuff anywhere. And, you know, I, I, I thought about, you know, I've traveled, I've seen some things, and I'd like to travel, but just here up and coming, you know, I've got, uh, I'm going to go to Permaculture Voices and talk about products and a modification of beehives to to make them more for better for the bees that I feel, and then I'm going to be teaching uh, mead making classes at the University of Wyoming's Bee College in March. I think that's the 20th through the 22nd. I'll be teaching the mead courses there, and then I'm looking at going to um, uh, Memphis, Tennessee. I owe a gentleman for a barter blanket deal. He uh, him and I shook hands, and I'm going to see. And he's thinking about having a class. So I'm working on that. I have a class for the gentleman for the quail. Best deal I ever made. Um, getting ready to expand my operation here in Wyoming. I just got a new partner, Mr. Twyford. He's been really moving in and doing really good. Uh, we're looking at maybe expanding. I don't really believe ever going over more than a thousand beehives as a company. And I doubt we'll ever go over 200. I just I just filled my ethics and morals, but uh, I'm giving it to this dehydrated honey. I think it's a huge product. I'm looking in uh, modification. I've been working with a guy named Albert Kovacek out of Utah on modification of my beehive, so you can't use it for industrialization. We're looking at it to keep it so beekeeping can be keep beekeeping and not industrialized. So, you know, there's some stuff out there that I'm working on, but I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to permaculture voices immensely, to be honest with you. Then uh, a lot of my friends from Perma Ethos and from uh, the TSP network are going to be floating through. Uh, 
that I've built huge bonds with that I cannot wait to see because uh, some of the projects and photos that we send back and forth are doing stuff. Uh, the famous one that you talk about, the turkey with the turkeys with the bees at my place. That's the, you know, it's doing stuff like that and, and watching uh, the one guy's got an alligator farm, man, that I thought was really cool. <laughs> so he's going to be coming about his alligators and stuff. So I think that's going to, I think that's going to be huge. And then I'm just waiting for Friday. I think I'm one of the top five or something on there to get my list for Nick's uh, uh, propagation course. So I'm waiting for Friday. Well, you're seeing all the trailers and stuff come out now <laughs> on Facebook. We're releasing a lot of little teasers and stuff. And I think that's another thing that I think is a business that people can turn up really fast is you know, propagating plants. Plants are designed like bees, right? If you keep bees long enough, you get more bees. That's what they do. If you manage plants properly, get more plants. Because if you went back to long before human beings were around and you looked at this planet, there were plants everywhere because they reproduced themselves. But to get them to reproduce themselves in the right form and the right function uh, and the right varieties, they need some guidance, just like bees. If you want bees that are a little bit more mellow and chill, you handle that through breeding. So I think that, you know, when you look at something like beekeeping, and we're working with you to put together a bee design course, uh, we're working with Nick on the plant propagation course, those two things in a backyard with a few of these other niche businesses that we're talking about can take a person into a point where either they have a full-time income or they have a damn good side income. And, I mean, frankly, the stuff you see me doing with the ducks and the chickens and, and the, the nursery business that we're building here, I'm not doing it because I want more. I'm doing it so that when somebody says, well, can you really do it? I'm be out here. I'm doing it more because it's kind of a put-up-or-shut-up thing for me. Since I'm telling people they can do it, I'll, I'm demonstrating so they'll emulate, uh, if that makes sense. But I think that oh, I, that's like printing money. I mean, being able to make plants is like being able to make dollars. Oh, I'm with you on the showing people how to do that. That was the, you know, I, my my wife wants to move out of town because they want black shape, black face sheep and some stuff like that. Uh, I do it inside the inner city because I'm showing people that you can do it no matter what the laws say. Uh, I know that you probably heard Josiah and me talk that, you know, uh, an anarchy, there is no government, like no government. And these people come through and they tell me, well, you know, you got chickens. And I go, yeah, well, how do you get away with them? I said, well, I, I have to have the chicken manure to put on my site because it's what fertilizes my plants that grow the nectar to feed my bees for the organic honey. <laughs> Why do you just buy chicken manure? And I said, because I don't know what those chickens are fed. I know what mine are fed. Yeah. Miner fed used bees. I scrape out my winter kill, and I feed those, and I feed the mites off the mite board. I said, I said I have a closed system here. I use rabbit chicken composting. You know, I, I fight the city because I rode it till into the street, and I catch all the rainwater. You know, it's runoff. I, you know, I'm with you. I do this to show people that you can do it. And well, I'll tell you the biggest business that I've seen that's not beekeeping and, I, and it paid for all my feed this year was my turkeys. My turkeys, uh, the, lo the lower end of this turkey weighed out at about 25.3 pounds. And uh, the largest one weighed out at 47. Wow, that's a big one. Uh, yeah, and I had, I had five of them this year. 
and I sold two of those birds at $7 a pound, and I sold the two toms, the 47-pounder and the 36-pounder. And those two birds paid for all my feed for them and my chickens this year. So that was a tremendous uh, bargain right there. That if you were really letting your your turkeys just run around and eat eat all your bugs and mow your yard, and you're just giving them, you know, I was giving them uh, each turkey, I was giving out five cups of feed, a cup of feed for each bird in the morning. And that's all they ate, and then they mowed everything on that little point three acre. They mowed it all down. They don't fly. They can stay in the front yard. They mowed everything down, and that was the biggest money maker that I had for the little home scale. I just sold it to two friends at at the pound, and when they bought them, then we killed them and plucked them. And I tell you what, they were damn good eating birds. Paid for my feed. If you could do that and raise quail, like I said, I'd like to do a little quail business on the side. You know, the I'm propagating my plants. This, Jack, you know, when you talk about going out and doing it, and you're doing it, you know, I've been to your place, you're doing it, and it works. I've had some people, you know, Nick Ferguson came to my place. I had some people from Colorado come up. We're doing it, and it works. You just got to take a little time, and eventually your hobby becomes your job, and you don't need no job anymore. Well, I, I wish I could turkeys, just... Michael, I had somebody that called us and said, you know, do you guys do turkeys about three weeks before Thanksgiving? And I said, no, we, we don't. We, you know, we do our things with our ducks and our chickens and all. And I said, well, do you know anybody that does? I said, well, I know a few people in the area do pasture turkeys. And they go, well, we really want one for Thanksgiving. And I felt bad, but I laughed at them. I'm like, I'm sorry, you're not getting a pastured turkey three weeks before Thanksgiving locally. And, and the lady was like, well, why not? I'm like, because they've been sold out since last year. Yeah, that's right. You a couple people you can call and talk to them, and 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 now would be the time to to register, you know, to get on a list with them and, and do a deposit to get a bird next year. And she said, "Are you serious?" And I said, "Ma'am, I'm serious. It's a heart attack. There's no turkeys for sale right now." And she thought I was kidding her. And I'm like, "I'm I'm trying to be. I'm not. I'm trying not to like sound like I'm picking you on or anything. I'm just I'm just telling you that there's only so many of them available. They're in high demand, and they're they're sold before the farmer gets his pulse in the spring, and she just couldn't believe it. And that's, but that's the God's honest truth. You're you're not even thinking about buying a turkey in August, let alone the first of November. Oh no, and it's such a big business now, right? I, I had to call around to order my heritage, mm. right? That the you know the guy I got him from. You know, I I was only able to get one uh, hen from him. And I said, well, what about peeps or eggs? And he says, and those are all gone. Yeah. I said, well, they're not even out yet. And he says, they're all gone. And he says, whatever I get, he says, I've already got people that, you know, want to do big, big runs of them. Because they're, God, they're great, they're great meat animal, man. Let's just face it. It's just that they're big. They need a lot of room. Yeah. But God, for, for the money, you know, that's a, one of those a month. You know, if you raise 12 of those. There's a meal a month, man, for sure, and all week long. Well, you know, and I, every time I think of turkeys, I think of this place out in Coober, Texas, that we looked at. We just there was, the house was too far gone. The people that lived there owned cats, and not one or two cats, lots of cats, and you can take it from there to what was wrong with the inside of this house. Um, ammonia smell, flea infested, whatever. So it just didn't work. But it was a 14 acre property. 
and it was shaped like a big bowl. And there's a great big pond right in the middle of it. And it was just native pasture. And it, we went out there in the summer and we started walking through the pasture and it looked like a locust swarm of grasshoppers. And I just sat there and I looked at that and I said, you can run 500 turkeys on this property. And from May to the end of August, barely feed them. The, every one of those grasshoppers was turkey waiting to happen. And there's, you know, properties like that out there. The property wasn't really even out of line in the price other than we did, like, the first thing you would have done with the house would have been a five-gallon can of gasoline and a match. <laughs> but if you wanted it as a farm property, it would have been, you know, fine. Or you could have lived in the shop while you built a new house. And we just, we didn't want to take that on. But I think there's opportunities all over the place if people look for them. Oh, most definitely, Jack. And that's, that's one reason why I wanted to come on, you know, is that not only to tell people, you know, that you, you can do it, you don't have to invest a lot of money. All right, I work for the school district because I like, I like good government insurance. My dad likes good government insurance, too, but he's called retired. He gets Social Security. I don't get that. So I'm at the other end, and I, I got a job at the school district, and at night I, I clean up and lock down the buildings, and it, it pays for my insurance. Now that I'm officially married and the state recognizes this as a married couple, that might change because she gets insurance. And we'll use the, the government's insurance on that end, and I might change so you know you don't have to think about jumping in and oh we're going to build this and this is going to be our family's business uh, your object is to find a way to make an income so you don't have to sweat in the hard times you lose your job i lose this school district job and in my insurance i don't sweat it i got my b business it still pays for all the utilities and all the stuff we just don't get to travel to see jack this summer <laughs> Right. Well, what was your job then? Because you got to come see me, man. I mean, <laughs> your life. Are, I mean, that's right. how you got to think of things. You know, you got to think of things that you're not losing money, right? I, I lost an opportunity. I took it. I lost it. I went on. I go on about my business because right now, living paycheck to paycheck for a lot of people sucks. It does. It definitely does. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you being with us here today. Do you uh, want to tell folk, folks how they can learn more about you and what you're doing? And hook up with you? I think the best way to find me is on Facebook. Find AB Friendly Company Incorporated on Facebook or abfriendlycompany.com. Uh, we have a website. Uh, the products are up. We're getting ready to try to do a uh, webcast. I'm working with uh, you, some, some of your boys over there at Prometheus about getting some videos and stuff up on lawmaking. And uh, we're going to get stung by a... Uh, a couple bees to show you the different things on some videos, and we're going to have a doctor do it. So, you know, catch us at uh, those two websites. Feel free to message me uh, at any one of those sites. Uh, I, 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 people call me all the, or message me all the time. I can't get phone calls all the, all the time because we're, you know, what we do. But if you message me, I'll, I'll, I'll help you with your mead recipe. I'll teach you how to dehydrate honey. You want to build a beehive out of a cardboard box and the paper tube from the toilet paper roll? I got you covered. <laughs> right, I, you just call and talk to me. I, I want to help you. That's, 
Except my whole entity has changed, Jack, after being a beekeeper. But I have to help people. I've been so bad and I've been such a parasite. This is my job. So go ahead and call me. Be friendly, company. me. We'll find Michael Jordan on Facebook right now. All right, well, I'll make sure I have links to all that stuff as well in the show notes for today. And with that, I want to say, folks, this has been Jack Spierka today, along with Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, helping you figure out how to live that better life as times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.